Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after the events of scandals such as Sewergate, is it time for our veteran counselors to step down? A vacant home tax has been floated by Ward 3 Counselor Narinder Nand in hope of discouraging that kind of practice. And unions representing teachers and education workers are saying that Hamilton's boards of education have done not nearly enough to deal with violence in the classroom. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Is it time that uh, veteran city councils here in Hamilton step down? An uh, op-ed in the Hamilton Spectator today says that with the continuous scandals, particularly Sewergate, as we have come to call this, it's time for that to happen. Margaret Shrimba is a freelance writer. Uh, she wrote the piece that's in the spec today, and she joins us here in studio to talk about this. Thanks for coming in today. Good to see you. Thanks, Bill, for having me. You are uh, one of many, many people I've talked to over the last couple of weeks that are uh, frustrated. I guess there's a whole bunch of adjectives we could use by this, uh, by the action, or maybe even, I guess, more appropriately, the inaction of members of council to do with this. Absolutely. It's amazing how many people have uh, come up to me, written to me, the conversations in the supermarkets, uh, in the workplaces that I've heard. I haven't heard one person defend counsel. Not one. In all of the voices that I've heard, um, and I've been writing for a number of years for the paper, and uh, my columns usually draw some kind of response, maybe one or two, but the this, the response, even at this point in time, has been overwhelming from the people of Hamilton, saying, you said what I think. Well, and we've seen that. Uh, I, I still remember the piece of, well, the action speaker, the, the you know, picture is a thousand words. The, uh, the op-ed piece of The Spectator one day it was just full of letters uh, to the editor. I, I, my inbox is inundated. It still is. Uh, you know, some days, weeks now after... Uh, this story broke. People are still outraged by this. And uh, if there were people that were involved in this that think, well, you know, in the passage of time, this is just going to fade and people are going to forget like they do almost everything else things. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. I don't think it is either. And um, of course, we face the challenge of the Christmas season coming yeah. up, you know, and, and as I said in my column, I'm exhausted. Okay, it's been a couple of weeks, and the outrage that I feel every day still at the fact that nothing is being done um, exhausts me. And, uh, you know, for my own self-care and for our all, all of our own self-care, we have to make sure that we don't, you know, overblow, like burn out over this issue. You, you've read about this. You've studied this. You've talked to a lot of people that are involved in this. Uh, do that, in, in your opinion, does council not even get what people are outraged by this? I, I don't know if they don't get it or if they're so caught up in the fact that they think they did what is right that they can't let them see themselves get it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there's some kind of face they need to save because they've got the support of legal. Um, public health came out and said that they didn't, nobody was at, put at risk. Um, so they don't feel as though they've got any, I believe they don't feel as though they've got uh, anything to be sorry for. The fact that we're all outraged about it um, they are not understanding or they refuse to understand because it will interfere with how they see themselves. I'm thinking this is where it's going because I don't understand how they could, in the face of overwhelming condemnation, continue on as business as usual and not think that people are demanding change, demanding it. Something has to happen. There are a couple of different perspectives, as I've talked to some of the people on council about this uh, in the days and weeks after the story broke. 
And it's not that the leak happened. I mean, that's bad enough. That's bad enough. And yeah. and the fact that there had been some signs that something was wrong, and they just kept going back and say, "Yeah, what the computer says." Uh, there should have been a follow up on that. But and I'm, we're going to get into that in a few minutes. It's that council withheld information from the public, and that's what they don't seem to get. Absolutely. The, the, that's that's where the outrage is coming from right now, especially in light of the fact that we found out about a Red Hill report. Uh, the, it, what else are they not telling us? Well, this is exactly where it leads to, right? It leads to a, a, a culture in the community that says, well, co- we, we can't trust counsel. We can't trust them to tell us the truth. We can't trust them to keep our best interests close to their hearts because that's not what they're doing. They're keeping the the corporate interests of the city is what they believe is their best interests instead of the health and safety of the people of the community that they're supposed to be serving. Now, I went down there one day in the past four years. I don't even know what day it was because I live close to Coots Paradise. Mm -hmm. And I went down by the York Street Bridge there and uh, I was overwhelmed by what I saw in the little side canal. Floating feces on the water, the smell was overwhelming. Now, I, I do agree with Mayor Eisenberger when he says that that environment has never been pristine. It never has been. We've abused it terribly over the time that we've lived here in this space. But I did put it to this trust that I knew what they were doing, that something happened, that I understood it to be an overflow issue. But I believe that somebody somewhere was paying attention to these things, and they had it under control, and they knew what was going on. Well, that's clearly not the case. Um, and if that's the case with this, what else am, am I looking around the city looking at going, what is this? What is this? You know, we should be more vigilant now. That's what it's telling me is that we need to be more vigilant about what our counselors are telling us. A couple of things, and I want to go back into the administrative side for just a second, uh, because they say, you know, their, their, their explanation, I don't think it's an excuse, but their explanation is that, well, you know, our, our computer stuff said that that gate was closed, even though it apparently was open. But there were complaints even after that, and people with visuals and, of course, the odor, uh, and they didn't follow up on it. They simply said, well, our, our reporting says, no, there's nothing wrong here. I mean, why didn't somebody actually have eyes on that thing and walk up there and say, is it closed or not? Because there's something going on here. Well, that brings into the other part of it, which is part of the MOE investigation, right? And yeah. the, it's part of the, the malfunction of the gate itself. But the fact that we don't have annual inspections on these things throughout the city, all of these little things that are working, supposed to be working in our computer systems, that's out, that's to me is poor management, absolutely poor management, and like this reliance that we have on technology, um, I'm, uh, well, I, 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 it does leave me a little flabbergasted to think that four years could go by and not nobody check to make sure that the computer system is working, that the backups are in place, that. Um, that everything is working like it's supposed to, that something hasn't malfunctioned somewhere. It either shows a, a lack of, um, I don't know what it is. I was going to say professionalism, but that's not it because it does speak to the way in which you should be running the department. Mark, four years. Four years. Not not like, oh, something happened this past summer, but we caught it when we did our inspection. Four years. And, and people brought it to their attention, and they still didn't do it. Now, again... That's part of the MOE investigation. But it does smack of this kind of paternalistic view of us that from City Hall that s- staff and counselors um, think we need to be taken care of, maybe 
um, information kept from us because we can't handle it um, or that it might somehow blow back in their faces. The distrust, um, the lack of, well, the lack of trust, I can't keep thinking of another word, it's trust. Uh, it's lost. There's, the trust and, and is listen, gone. There's, there's no no harm at all in going back to that lack of trust because I think that's the the crux of the oh, issue here. Yeah. If if elected officials at any level of government have lost the trust of the people that put them there, we got a problem. Absolutely, and we're only at the beginning of four years. You know, a long way to the next election. That we got to put up with this this for four years. You know, and, and some of the things I've been thinking, like what can we do? Like Dreschel's column in the Spectator the other day spoke to the limitations that we have in terms of our uh, recourse. Um, we are pretty much hamstrung. We can hope that the ombudsman comes through and creates something, um, um, undertakes a report. Um, but it really, I think it behooves us, the people, to convey to our councillors and our mayor that they have lost our trust and we, we, they have lost their moral authority to govern us. Um, and I was thinking about how it used to be in the old days that shunning was the practice where, mm-hmm. you know, uh, somebody would walk into a room and you would turn their back on them mm-hmm. or um, you would disinvite them from. This is a perfect opportunity to disinvite councillors and the mayor from any festivities over the holidays. Get them, get them to see that we're angry. People are angry and they're not helping the situation by saying, we did what we were supposed to do. That's not good enough. You know, what they were supposed to do was think about our best interests, um, our health and safety, our reputation as a city. People are looking at us all over Canada. We've got the attention of, can- inter- I would say yeah, internationally. For, in for all cases. the wrong reasons for right now. For all the wrong reasons. And, and for reasons that only go to reinforce preconceived and stereotypical ideas of Hamilton as, you know, the armpit of Canada. Well, we're not the armpit anymore. Now we're the, I don't know if I can say it on the radio. Well, here's the thing. I mean, I, meant, I mentioned this on the show yesterday. We were at a, a function in, in Toronto on Saturday night. Great friends, and we had a great blast. But the topic of conversation, as soon as they found out that I was from Hamilton, uh, was about uh, the confrontations at City Hall with right. the, the Yellow Vesters and this. Mm-hmm. And and I know they they were sort of doing it tongue in cheek, but I mean if that that's what's front of mind for an awful lot of people because you know if you don't live here, the only time you think about it if you live in Toronto or Oshawa or Vancouver or any place else is when it makes news, and all of a sudden it's making news for all the wrong reasons, and you get labeled that way. And and for a city that's trying to get back and and try to attract even more investment into this community, uh, we can't we can't do this. We can't let this. Uh, identify it. This can't be how we define ourselves with these two things. No, it can't. And, and you bring up a really important issue, is it, with, which is you know what's happening in the forefront of for, sorry, forecourt of City Hall with the yellow vests and the protests, and then you know even further back than that with the Pride debacle and what Last happened summer. there. You know, maybe one of these things might have been okay, but this is the third thing. And honestly, I'm just scratching my head at the absence of the mayor in any of these really major confrontations to city identity. You know, it's almost as though he's totally skating through this term that his um, ele- that being elected on the platform of the LRT was the only thing that is on his mind, and that's the only thing that he wants to see done, and everything else can just, I don't know what, but, you know, I'm, I'm really, really disappointed. And I'm, and I'm only 
reflecting the words that I'm hearing from people all over the city. We are disappointed, at the least. I wanted to say when I first heard this story that, boy, anybody that got elected in this last election, including the veterans, probably in their wildest dreams didn't have any idea that they'd have to be dealing with issues like this, like the the Pride debacle at Gage Park, like this, Uh, and, of course, with Sewage Gate. But then now that we get more information, well, two things about that. First of all, it doesn't really matter what you expected of this job. Once it's on your table, you got to deal with it. That's that's the job. You may not like it, and you may be thinking, oh, hey, this is way over my pay grade. It's not. That's Careful what you're supposed what you to do. Careful what you wish for. Exactly. And then we find out, in hindsight, they even knew about this before the last election. That that's They've been sitting on this for a long, long time. That's inexcusable, and that's where I think we could actually – and I don't know what the legal um, – uh, options are for us in terms of dissolving council and how you would do that and whether or not um, we could make the argument that they've completely lost the faith of and the trust of the cities, the, the community, and and maybe that's something that we could do. I don't know that we could go that route. I would rather see any money that we've got going towards a new council than a review of what happened. Well, and as Andrew explained, and I, I know a little bit about the Municipal Act having been there, uh, there is no recall here like there is no. in some other jurisdictions. You can't do that. Uh, there's been no proof of any criminal activity right now. So, I mean, technically, technically, the Premier could step in today and say Hamilton Council is dissolved. They, they, the provincial government has that power with any municipality at any time, and they really don't even know that we exist at the behest of the provincial government. Right. Uh, but I don't see Ford getting involved in this in any way, shape, or form either. I mean, he's already wagged his finger at, at this council, but I don't think it's going to go any farther than that. So there, you're right. There's the idea of throw the bums out is really not going to happen, and I don't see anybody stepping up and saying, "Okay, I'm going to I'm going to resign." Well, I'd like to know, you know, how many people are contacting the councillors and the mayor with resign letters, because I'm sure that you know their inboxes are full of angry people telling them that they need to resign, and why they're not listening, and why they're not in some way showing more contrition over what happened. Um, it's uh, I'm totally flabbergasted at their reluctance. I mean, when I think of the things that people have resigned over, uh, you know, th- they kind of pale in comparison to this. And, and, and okay, nobody died. Nobody got sick. But there was, don't tell me there wasn't damage to the ecosystem. But that's a knock on wood issue, right? Yeah. Like, it, we're really lucky no well, one Well, it wasn't died. as bad as Walkerton. Well, that, doesn't, that, that doesn't excuse it. And we can't keep Walkerton far from our minds when we're thinking about our water, the safety of our water. We live in an unbelievably beautiful environment with the escarpment and the lake and Coots Paradise and the harbor. And we have just, you know dumped our feces all over it for years. We don't appreciate it. And um, all the efforts, I mean, my heart breaks for all the people who have spent countless hours in Coots Paradise trying to remediate that environment, only to have this happen. I mean, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And then the, and then the city councillors not having enough empathy, empathy to to connect with the people on this. I think that's probably what's missing because they're not connecting with us. They've been in council for so long, the seasoned ones, that they forget what it's like to to be on this side. They're in their boys' girls' club where they all talk the same language and have the same expectations of each other. Term after term after term, they become solidified in these roles. They think that they're impervious to criticism and they've got the widespread mandate of the the 
community when really it's only because they got the job last year that the people voted for them again this year, not because of any necessary fact that they did a good job. Uh, That's our problem is we need term limits to council so that we have a change every every eight years at least in a, in a ward that we've got new blood, fresh eyes, and the opportunity for, um, like it doesn't surprise me that it's the, the three new councillors that came forward and said, you can't do this. You know, you've lost, they've lost sense of what they can do. They think that they can do more than they should be. The uh, piece is uh, entitled Sewagegate, Veteran Hamilton Counselors, Your Time is Past. Uh, Margaret Scrimba, as always, thanks for coming in. It's great to Thank you. Thank you so much, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, vacant home tax has been floated uh, by uh, City Council Committee uh, yesterday saying that staff should actually study whether or not they can actually charge some kind of a tax anyway uh, against uh, people that actually buy houses and just leave them vacant. Uh, as you know, we've got a problem with housing stock, affordable housing stock, uh, both residential and, of course, uh, city-owned properties as well. Uh, Chad Collins, the Council for Ward 5, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about this. Chad, thanks for jumping out of a meeting. I appreciate the time today. No problem, Bill. Thanks for having me. You've been on this file for, as long, I think, as about as long as you've been on council right now, the affordable housing and the affordability of housing in this community. Yeah. you got to be frustrated at some point, Chad, to figure, you know what, you guys seem, notwithstanding the fact that the federal and provincial governments certainly talk the talk, uh, they're pretty much leaving it up to you to try to find solutions here. You're right, and they have, and part of our budget process that just started a, a few weeks ago highlighted the fact that, uh, from a housing perspective, the city continues to put more resources into it historically than both the provincial and federal governments, and that is certainly a change in terms of what municipalities are accustomed to, over the last 30 or 40 years, we've seen significant investments up until probably the the late uh, 90s when we started to see both the federal and the provincial government start to wean themselves off of investments in housing. And they've gravitated more towards loans now than they have grants. And so that's a concern to us as well. And um, and so, yeah, so the, the budget process uh, uh, illustrated not just those investment trends that I, that I just referenced, but it also highlighted the fact that Housing and transit are, are the two top priorities for ha- for this city council and the previous city council. So the, the charts that we witnessed yesterday from Mr. Zagarek through the capital budget highlighted um, significant investments in housing and transit. And, of course, it's almost become a losing battle as it relates to trying to provide new units to get at that long wait list that we have, as well as trying to retrofit and repair some of the uh, old unit, older units that we have in the city that are, in some cases, 50 or 60 years old. Dealing with vacant properties has been an ongoing problem with this council for many, many years. And and I know that there was a period of time, that, well, you referenced the early or the late 1990s when there were some problems going on. Uh, and, and that was in the commercial end of things. And council actually adopted a policy there where there was going to be reduced property taxes on vacant properties. That was basically to encourage uh, those owners to get somebody else in there in the way of tenants. But that seemed to be abused with the passage of time. Uh, where these properties remain vacant, and now it's starting to happen in the residential section. Did you get any sense as to as to why that's going on? Well, I think it, it, if you look to other communities, Bill, in terms of Toronto or Vancouver, we see investors buying properties and sitting on them. At, from a speculation, from a speculator standpoint, they they sit on the properties, they leave them vacant, and then they hope that within a year, two, three years' time, um, they've gained such equity and value that they can flip them. And, um, and, and, you know, the, they avoid having to deal with tenants or, or other issues related to owning a property and, and renting it out. 
So we've seen that in other communities where they're purchased from an investment standpoint and uh, they remain vacant. And I, and I believe the report that was requested yesterday is asking uh, our staff to come back with a snapshot in terms of where Hamilton sits. Of course, we don't have markets like Toronto, Vancouver, and some large urban municipalities across the country. But we are one of the hottest real estate markets in the country. So whether we've tipped the scales to the point where we're, at, we're there uh, as it relates to people buying properties and sitting on them, I think remains to be seen. But I think, as Councillor Marula noted, it's probably just a matter of time until we reach that point, and, and who knows when that will be. Well, and the other side to this, too, uh, is obviously, you know, when they tend to do that, uh, the, the they, they don't maintain the properties more often than not. And there's a picture in the spec story about this course, about boarded up doors and windows, and, you know, mm-hmm. the grass grows long. Uh, property standards become a problem, but that's that's a rather convoluted way for the city to try to go after that. Uh, because you have to obviously, even if you give them notice to say clean up the property, they get what thirty or sixty days to do it. I think there is an appeal process. You're right, Bill. And usually they wait until the last possible day, and then they appeal it, and that of course extends it again, and it goes on and on like this. And traditionally, those owners or landlords know the rules inside out, and so they they try to find every opportunity in some cases to avoid compliance. And um, and I think what we've witnessed over the last number of years, uh, you know, certainly when a property is under um, development uh, review as it, as it relates to either a, an active application for committee of adjustment or rezoning, oftentimes we will see properties va- left vacant because they're on the verge of being demolished. And so it's, it's not uncommon, especially with some of the development we've seen lately, to see vacant buildings across the city with boards on them and, and a board, on, a, a, an official planning notice on the property to indicate, in fact, that this property is um, under review and has an ap- active application, so that's not uncommon, and that's in all parts of the city. I'd say that we also see another category of, of homes that are in the category you just suggested in terms of long grass, weeds, uh, boards on the windows, and, there, and there, there's no indication that this property will be developed anytime soon, and those are the ones that currently fall under our vacant registry bylaw. So they're required by law to register with the city, we do annual inspections twice a year of those properties to make sure that there's no access uh, ability to access the property, whether it's from kids or, or squatters or, or other individuals who want to gain entry for whatever purpose. And then, of course, through those inspections, we try to keep on top of, uh, of long grass, weeds, and some of the garbage and other things that are, are common problems with vacant properties. And that can be a cat-and-mouse game between the neighbours who oftentimes call us to advise that they have one of these properties on their street or in their neighbourhood and, and oftentimes um, our bylaw officers are back there more than the twice a year. And it's unfortunate because some of these properties remain in that state for, in some cases, three, five, ten years. And there's just no incentive for the, for the owner to move on with it. They pay their taxes. Um, they, they, keep, they have to deal with property standards and maybe other city departments who are called in by the neighbours. And I think yesterday's report, highlights the the uh, other tools that municipalities may be able to use and, and one of them was this, the thought of a vacant building tax and that would be a further incentive for the owner to develop the property redevelop the property or use the property in its in its existing condition to uh you know for for residential or commercial purposes this is really a, a matter of simple math isn't it chad i mean you know we have a problem right now with housing prices but part of mm-hmm. that part of the reason for that is we don't have enough stock. Uh, and, and as long as you've got people that are hoarding houses and buying, as you say, five, five six, seven, maybe ten or more, 
and, and keeping them vacant, that that's that's that number of that those houses of course are not available now. Those could be affordable housing units for somebody else instead of sitting there vacant. So it's it's really what these people are doing is really exacerbating the problem. It, it's exactly right, Bill. It, it definitely affects supply, and so every unit that's not on the market um, is an issue for us as it relates to trying to house people who either live in Hamilton or are looking to move to Hamilton. It also drives up prices. And so as you start to limit the number of units that are available and uh, where supply, uh, where demand exceeds supply, we start to see those prices rise. And we're seeing that right now in, in our local market. We're seeing that both in rents as, uh, as, as it becomes more difficult to find a rental unit. Landlords have the ability to increase rents to historic prices, prices that we haven't seen in this community before. And it also affects those who are looking to purchase a home here locally. So it, 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 there's, there are some issues that come with um, not just a hot real estate market, but as you just noted, every time there's a, there's a rental unit, uh, or sorry, a single family home, a townhouse, or an apartment unit that's left vacant, there are implications for those people who are in the residential market, and they're, they're negative. We'll uh, see how this develops uh, as it goes through council, and obviously you're going to get some input on staff or from staff on this as well. Chad, thanks as always. Appreciate you joining in today. Thanks, Bill. That's a Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins. Uh, Narendra Nan is the councillor for uh, Ward 3 in the center of the city uh, who uh, has come up with this idea and, and addressed uh, staff about this, and uh, she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us uh, an outlook as to exactly how this is happening. Narendra, thanks for jumping in. I appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks for the opportunity. As soon as I saw this, I was looking at, uh, I, I had some folks from the Social Planning and Research Council on the program last week, mm-hmm. and we were uh, talking about the fact that rents, now this is not just owning, but rents have jumped 21% uh, in the last two and a half years here in this city, which is just ridiculous, obviously, because people's salaries and incomes don't jump that high. But that seems to be the conundrum we're facing right now. And as, uh, as Councillor Collins uh, has just described to us, uh, we seem to have a, a, a predicament here where there are people that are actually buying up stock that could be part of the solution for this city. Absolutely. And the goal of this motion was primarily to be proactive, to say that if Hamilton's housing market is hot, which is a market where housing prices keep going up, but where sales are down, we have to ensure that we don't end up like other cities facing the same crisis where units and houses are sitting empty and so that they can increase in value while more and more people are displaced and unable to find affordable place to live. Well, and it's, there's a number of different side issues here that, as a result. I mean, oftentimes, well, as, as in particular in your area, in Ward 3 and mm-hmm. anywhere down in the uh, in the lower city, uh, those are those are what we would call infill opportunities as opposed to just simply saying, well, I guess we can always build more houses. Uh, not a whole lot of opportunity to do that unless you're going to start moving into green space. And, 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 and obviously that, that seems kind of ridiculous when you've got housing stock that could be available in, in other parts of the city right now. But if nobody's going to let them open on, into the market, uh, we've got a real concern here. And as you say, it's driving prices up to the point where it's unaffordable for everybody. Yeah, it's already happening here and perhaps not to the same scale as larger cities. But we are facing a housing crisis in our city we are seeing a rise in the homeless population. People who are making $18 an hour are struggling to make uh, rent because the majority of their income is going towards their housing costs, let alone if you're somebody who's making minimum wage who would have to work, I think, that SPRC study that you um, mentioned earlier, so that you would have to work 54 hours a week to afford a one-bedroom apartment here. 
And at the same time, Food Chair Hamilton has shared that they've seen a rise in families who have no choice but to turn to food banks to feed their children. So as a city, we, I believe we're obligated to put in measures in place to ensure a city isn't one, well, that a city is one that is of fairness and access so that we can all thrive together. And what's great about this model is when we look at best practices across the country, when Vancouver started this initiative in 2017, they charged a tax rate of 1% and allocated all of those funds that were generated from this uh, empty house tax to affordable housing projects. So they were able to address the issue in twofold by making sure that uh, the vacant property owners uh, to avoid the 1% tax, put the house back on the market, whether for purchase or for renting. And then for those who said, you know what, I can afford to pay that 1% tax because I'm more interested in the profit that I'm going to make when I sell this property, those funds were able to be allocated to affordable housing projects. And they've seen more than half of the empty properties come back into the market since the tax was implemented. So what are you looking for from staff here? Since there already are some templates that are in play here in other communities that seem to be working. Yeah, so different municipalities are governed by different municipal acts. So our staff are required, the motion asks staff to identify what is the feasibility of establishing a tax or a charge or some sort of fee for residential properties that are vacant so that we can encourage them getting occupied. Uh, how long is that going to take, do you think? Um, my goal is to have this within the 2021 budget deliberation process, so hopefully it'll come in the Q3 for 2020 prior to us talking about the budget. How would you describe the problem here? I mean, you mentioned about, you know, obviously the markets in Vancouver and Toronto, and uh, and it's starting to bleed here just as the, the, the pricing conundrum from a couple of years ago started to bleed into this market, and we've already seen that happen, and there's been some gentrification, and there's been a lot of things that have happened here uh, as people start looking to Hamilton and say, well, maybe maybe that's affordable, and all of a sudden, it, in many instances, it's not affordable anymore because of some of these pressures that you've just described. Is this a rampant problem, or is this something that you'd like to see nipped in the bud before it becomes a rampant problem? I think it's a growing concern. I know of people who have shared with me as their counselor in Ward 3 that they own multiple properties. And when I ask them, do you have renters in all of those properties? Sometimes the answer is no. And they're sitting on vacant residential properties. And Councillor Marula during GIC yesterday mentioned that he's aware that people are buying new development condos and townhouses kind of like in bulk in a similar kind of prospecting, speculating hope to make as much profit as possible. So I would say that we're not in a large-scale problem right now. From my anecdotal analysis <laughs> of talking to residents mm-hmm. and some property owners, but it's incumbent upon us to identify how are we going to monitor this situation and how are we putting the measures in place so that we are being proactive to nip this problem in the pro- in the bud prior to it becoming a large-scale problem. Yeah, I've had discussions with people in the real estate market that have articulated that very same thing, is even with new developments, and there are some condo projects that are going up in different parts of the city right now, 
uh, they've got multiple buyers, right? people that are buying multiple units and, and sitting on them, expecting that, well, I'll wait a year or two years and the, the price will go up and, and I'll, I'll make some money. It's speculation. We get that. But by the same token, I mean, that's it's robbing us of, of housing stock. And really, it's, it's making a bad situation worse here when it comes to affordable housing. Absolutely. And one thing that I said when I first became counselor is that we do need investment. We do need people who want to come to Hamilton and um, invest in our city, but not on the backs of our people. The other side to this, too, and it, it, I guess there are some people that are listening to this thinking, wow, why can't you just get it going now? Obviously, there's some, some T's to cross and some I's to dot before you can actually get this done because of the Municipal Act and different regulations that are in play here. But the fact that you're even considering doing that and, and moving towards this uh, might be the motivation for some of these uh, landowners to simply say, okay, maybe maybe I, I don't want to pay the tax. I'll just start renting now. So, I mean, I'd like to think that we're going to see some positive movement in this just because of, of the action that you're taking right now to try to look into this and, and hopefully at some point implement it. I would hope so. Uh, that would be a great spinoff of council having a unanimous vote in support of this motion. Well, we'll uh, continue to track it and see what happens. Narendra, thank you so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Cheers, Bill. Narendra Diane, of course, the cancer for uh, Ward 3 in the inner city, uh, right in the middle of the downtown. Uh, and I know I know, everybody's going to say, well, there goes another tax. But it's not a tax grab because, as, as she mentioned, uh, any money that's generated from this tax is going to go right back into uh, fixing up affordable housing to try to fix the problem up so that everybody has a roof over their head. It's, it's a dollar-for-dollar dollar program. It's not as if it's going into general coffers for heaven knows what else. Uh, because there's a lot of other things about city spending that we should and could be uh, putting under the microscope. But this sounds like a pretty good idea that has been implemented in some other jurisdictions, including Vancouver. And it uh, seems to be working there pretty well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is not a new issue, but it's an ongoing issue and one that I guess is causing a great deal of consternation. And that's violence in the classroom. Now, unions that represent uh, the teachers and education workers are saying that uh, Hamilton's boards of education have not done nearly enough about this issue of violence in the schools, so they've decided to develop their own task force and try to tackle this. Uh, the boards themselves aren't crazy about this idea, frankly. We're going to hear from one of them in just a couple of minutes, but I want to uh, bring Jeff Sorensen into the conversation. First of all, Jeff is uh, with the Hamilton Wentworth Teacher. He's the local president of the Hamilton Wentworth Teachers, the ETFO. And uh, first of all, Jeff, thanks for uh, taking some time. Glad you could join us on the program today. Thank you. Good morning, Bill. This is a serious issue. I mean, we're, we're, this is not just talking about verbal abuse, although that's part of it, but there's actually a physical violence. I've, I've talked to some teachers that are uh, have actually had to take time off because of injuries they have received. Why, why well, the perception of ina- inaction here by the Board of Education? Because every time we talk to the boards, they say, yeah, yeah, we're looking into this. We're going to try to work with the teachers on this. Yet I don't see this abating in any way, shape, or form. No, that's exactly right. Uh, our numbers are not decreasing. If they were, I think we'd have a very different perspective. But we know that our members are taking more time off uh, related to violence in the workplace. Uh, we know that our WSIB claims are increasing. Uh, we know our long-term disability rates are increasing. And those numbers can be traced back to workplace violence. So um, whatever the board claims they're doing isn't making a difference in the front lines of our classrooms. What are they doing in, in your mind? I'm going to talk with Alex Johnstone in just a couple of minutes here, but I want to get some, a, perspective from, a perspective rather a, 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 from this on you. Uh, you're the frontline workers. You're the ones that are being directly impacted by this. Right, and so uh, we have consistently and constantly over the last several years 
told the board that this is an ongoing issue, that this is an issue that needs to be looked at. And frankly, whether it's from a principal or a superintendent or, or a director, uh, we just don't see action. We have members who report to us that when they go to the principal and ask for assistance, their response is, uh, what did you do to cause this problem? And so that is not effective action. That is not uh, activity that will address the current problem. And we know the problem doesn't lie solely with the board. I mean, part of this is about the lack of support. Uh, we believe in integration of students. Every child deserves an education. But uh, you can't cheap it out. You can't just drop kids into classrooms and say, we hope you uh, are successful. You know, we used to have more educational assistants. We used to have social workers. We used to have guidance counselors. Those things don't exist anymore. Or if they do, they exist in smaller numbers than ever before. Well, this is, and I know people are going to start getting, oh, there they go with staffing again. You want to hire more of them and pay them all kinds of money. But this is, <laughs> it's, it's getting to be a safety issue right now. I mean, there used to be, uh, and it wasn't that many years ago, and that, that if there were special needs kids in a, in a particular class, there was usually an education assistant for each one of them. Now you're lucky if you've got one for a couple of classrooms. They, they have what they call half days. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Yeah, and educational assistance used to provide academic assistance. Yeah. Uh, we know our board has been told EAs are now just for uh, helping out with behavior. And this isn't just about special needs kids. I mean, we know that violence is, is, has a root cause in, in many different ways. Um, and it's not just about hiring teachers. We're not talking about teachers. We're talking about uh, community professionals that can help uh, families and help students uh, because, you know, we're not trained social workers. We're not trained uh, police officers. We're teachers. We're educators. Uh, you know, when kids come to our classroom, we want to help them move along with the curriculum. We can't be evacuating our classrooms multiple times every day. Uh, that's not good for the child in question, and that's not good for the other children either. And, and when our members are getting hit and spit and are asked to wear Kevlar, and uh, you know who are getting chairs thrown at them, that's not a safe workplace. And, and I know we're there to take care of kids, but we're also workers in the province of Ontario, and we deserve a safe workplace like you yourself. I mean, it, it, you're not, uh, it, it wouldn't be acceptable to work in a radio station where you're uh, sworn at, where you're threatened, where you're punched. That's not acceptable, and it shouldn't be acceptable for us either. Why is it becoming more rampant? Uh, and I, I guess, I don't know if you can quote stats here, Jeff, but I mean, just <coughs> anecdotally, uh, these used to be rare instances. Now they seem to be almost common occurrences. Yeah, and I think people used to think that, you know, in certain parts of the city this exists, and in other parts of the cities it doesn't exist. Uh, we know that's just not true either. Whether you go to Ancaster, Dundas, uh, Stony Creek, downtown, Mountain, there's violence in schools. Uh, and, and it's also not even the violence we used to think of, which was, you know, perhaps the older students. Uh, you know, now it's our, our kindergarten students, our grade one, our grade two, or grade three students, those are the teachers that report to us more often than anybody that they're the, the subject of violence. They're being kicked, they're being punched, they're being pushed. Uh, I, I mean, some of the stories I hear are just astounding, really. Uh, uh, and, and the fact that, well, there is a reporting mechanism that's in place right now, but you don't feel it's so effective. Uh, if you are going to go down this road and, and say, okay, we're going to do our own task force right now, uh, yeah. what, what's, I, I know what the intended goal is here, but how are you going to approach it differently than what the board seems to be doing? Well, we want to talk to um, everyone, uh, parents, we want to talk to teachers, we want to talk to education workers in both boards. 
because we think that there is perhaps, and, and this is part of what we want to see is, is there a reason for the underreporting? We know uh, the numbers that we have access to, because our group, ETFO, did a survey on violence a few years ago. We know that our numbers are much higher than the board's numbers. So we want to find out why is there underreporting? You know, is there a fear that uh, a school will look bad or a principal will look bad if there's violence in their school, if their suspension numbers are high? Uh, is one board or another board purposely lowering numbers so that they can get students to come to their schools rather than the other schools? You know, competition in education has no place in Ontario. And, and you know, is that part of the problem? Are, are people not uh, wanting to admit that there's violence? whether it's in the neighborhood school or the neighborhood high school. That's what we want aim to figure out. Well, it's overt, and we've seen obviously tragic examples of that at Winston Churchill and, and some other schools in the last little while, But it's and that's the high school situation. But the, the fact that it's going on in elementary schools, too, is uh, is very, very challenging. Jeff, let's stay in touch as this uh, evolves over the next little while. I'd like to do a follow-up on this real soon. Sure. Thanks, Bill. I'd, I'd love to do that as well. Okay. Jeff Sorensen, of course, uh, with the... Uh, uh, he is the local president of the ETFO. Alex Johnson is the chairman of the board for the uh, Hamilton Board of Education, uh, and uh, she joins us to, to give her perspective on this. Alex, thanks for joining us. Uh, glad you could be here today. Uh, I, I just I'm hearing from some very frustrated teachers that say, "Look, the board is aware of this; they just don't seem to be doing enough." How do you respond to that? Well, I think um, first and foremost, we welcome the conversation. Um, so when we we were first made of the aware of the media uh, release yesterday, and uh, one of the things that I first did was to call up one of our union presidents to get a better understanding of what the task force would entail. It does sound to be uh, different, but complementary to the panel that uh, our board is putting together on bullying. Uh, which is a review on prevention and intervention uh, uh, tactics and strategies. With that, um, this is a this is a major topic. It's a topic that uh, is certainly ongoing across the entire province. I know that there's been a large campaign um, at the provincial level with regards to the supports that are provided in the classroom. Part of this is accurate, uh, whereas we do have uh, uh, actual funding model where you have ratioed uh, teachers to students, um, that doesn't happen at the EA level. And uh, I know that as our our teachers and educators are bargaining right now, one of the main issues is to secure, it's called local priority funding, and those are funds that our board uh, specifically used to, to hire additional EAs. Um, those in, as well as other educational staff. Um, those are individuals that we place into our most, uh, our high priority schools uh, to work with our most vulnerable students. Um, and they certainly make a, a huge and profound uh, difference on uh, uh, ensuring that our classrooms are the best that they can be. Alex, uh, just speaking with Jeff Sorensen, I, I know you heard the, the, the part of that conversation anyway. Uh, Jeff feels, and, and so do many of his members apparently, that uh, that these are actually underreported incidents, that there are a lot of teachers that are being victimized by this that just don't bother to go through channels. Is that, is that what you sensed as well? Well, that's, that's certainly a major concern. I think that um, when it comes to these instances, um, there's been a lot of work that has taken place internally at our board to, to help uh, support and improve that over the years. 
um, part of the work that will come put out during the panel is how to to ensure that um, instances of of bullying um, and violence can um, are reported in an effective way. We saw changes just the other month in terms of how our bullying uh, online uh, report system was uh, underwent improvements to ensure that there is uh, a more quick response when those reports are being made. Okay, so you've got a report mechanism that's in place right now. But uh, Jeff also mentioned that he, he's talked to a number of his members that have said if they, when they go through that process, oftentimes they, well, first of all, some he said some of them aren't being believed, and secondly, they're simply saying, well, you know, it's, what deal with it. There's not much we can do here. Uh, what, what about follow-up actions? Is, is there a protocol to, to be followed here? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and that's a concern to hear, um, to hear that. I think that that's where... Uh, you know, certainly having engaging with our staff, but ensuring that there is proper supports in place. So, for example, we were extremely pleased the other week when um, all of our employees took part, um, or all of our educators took part in our PA day that had a focus on bullying. There was no other board across the province that did take part in the PA day due to work action. We had a very special focus here at our board and we were really thankful that our unions worked with us uh, and to ensure that our employees received the training and support uh, that they need in order to better to, uh, support our students. Uh, when it comes to some of these more violent actions that are, uh, that are being discussed, I think that that's where uh, we do need to ensure, uh, especially at a provincial level, that we have the correct funding and support. Um, with regards to the concern about um, whether, I guess, uh, if there is a concern that, uh, that bullying is not being uh, taken, or not uh, violent instances are be- being uh, pushed to other under report, those individuals need to uh, go higher. They, they certainly need to let their superintendents know. They also need to let their union reps know uh, so that a grievance can be filed and immediate action can be taken. Um, there, there certainly is mechanisms in place uh, for that to be stopped. Well, and therein lies the frustration. If these incidents are being underreported, uh, then obviously there are people that are going to be looking at statistics and say, well, it's not as big a problem as they seem to make it out to be. I mean, you, you, you're right. You have to, to follow up on each and every one of these cases. So if they go ahead with this, and it seems as if they, they're intending to go ahead and do their own uh, task force and study on this, uh, and I know you are are talking with the Catholic Board, and you guys are working. Down. Is it better to be working in parallel paths, or would you rather have one collaborative effort be- with everybody involved, since you're all basically stakeholders in this whole thing? No, I we look forward to um, receiving uh, their review. I, as I said, I had a conversation with one of the union presidents yesterday, um, so they they're just in the very start of putting this together. Uh, they don't have a timeline yet, and we'll be very interested to hear uh, what their results are. We also look forward to engaging them during our panel discussion um, on bullying prevention and intervention. Um, and at that level, we certainly look forward to uh, engaging all of our uh, employing groups as one of the top, um, top informants during this process. Is the ministry aware of the severity of this problem? I believe so. Um, certainly, um, they're certainly aware of it. There's been an ongoing campaign for the last number of years. It's an issue that is certainly being talked about in the public. 
and, and this is not only a, this is a Hamilton problem. We need to articulate that. I know we're talking to the Hamilton boards here, and you, and you, of course, as the chair of the board for the, the Board of Education here. But this is this is really a province-wide problem that I'm hearing about in, in just about every other community. It is, Bill. And I think where um, I'm very nervous about the conversation going um, is that this cannot become a conversation where we are talking about um, taking, uh, you know, denying certain kids from the classroom. And uh, I think that we need to be looking at how we better support our classrooms, uh, what resources are needed. Um, I think that, uh, but I, I would not be in support of, um, um, you know, a whole push to, to remove kids from the classroom if that's where the conversation's going. Well, yeah, we're getting into the recommendation aspect of this, and I guess there's a lot more data that has to be accumulated first. Uh, Alex, thanks so much for the time today. We look forward to uh, working together with, uh, with the teachers and with, of course, the boards to try to find a common solution here. Thank you. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.